Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. This is Vet Story. I'm Rod Rodriguez. You may have noticed that Vet Story has been on something of a hiatus these last few weeks. Well, that's because we're making some changes that I think you're really going to like. I'm kind of a new voice here at Connecting Vets. It's a real honor to be part of such an amazing creative team and to work alongside some very talented journalists. Now, getting behind the driver's seat of Vet Story means being part of a legacy of veteran podcasters like Eric Dame and Philip Briggs, who've done some amazing work with this platform. Now, Vet Story has been entrusted to me to carry it forward. Along with my trusty executive producer, Alice Massimi, our goal is to bring you exactly what Vet Story has been about since the very beginning. Veteran Stories. To do that, we're going to relaunch Vet Story. This March, we're moving to seasons. Each season will be 15 episodes, and then we're going to take a break to get ready for season two. Till then, we're going to be very busy putting together some amazing stories from veterans, and not just war stories, but stories of courage, overcoming adversity, and sometimes stories of loss. These are real stories from real people just like you. While we put those shows together, I want to share some of my favorite podcasts with you. I spend a lot of time listening to podcasts. Not all of them are veteran related. I'm unapologetically a Joe Rogan listener. I enjoy the creepy stories from the No Sleep podcast. And is it too self-indulging if I say that I think another show that I host is pretty darn good? The Warfighter Hemp podcast? (laughs) Well, well, maybe it is. But for this preseason episode of Vet Story... I want to share with you a real gem from one of my absolute favorite podcasts, Radio Diaries. Radio Diaries is a podcast of first-person diaries, sound portraits, and hidden chapters of history from Peabody Award-winning producer Joe Richmond and the Radio Diaries team. From teenagers to octogenarians, prisoners to prison guards, bra saleswomen to gospel preachers, extraordinary stories of ordinary life. The wonderful people at Radio Diaries were kind enough to grant us permission to replay an episode that really struck a chord with me. It's called Prisoners of War, and it's the remarkable and heartbreaking story from the Vietnam conflict about American prisoners, not in a Vietnamese prison, but an American military prison on the outskirts of Saigon. I want to thank Sarah Kramer from Radio Diaries for helping me get this episode onto Vet Story so that I can share it with you. This story was produced by Sarah Kate Kramer for Radio Diaries with help from Joel Richman and Nellie Gillis and was edited by Deborah George and Ben Shapiro. To hear more stories from Radio Diaries, subscribe to their podcast. Use your podcast app of choice or visit radiodiaries.org. Radio Diaries is part of the Radiotopia Network from PRX. And now, Prisoners of War. Radiotopia. From PRX's Radiotopia, this is Radio Diaries. I'm Joe Richman. Today in the podcast, Prisoners of War. And a heads up, this story contains some strong language. 
When I first heard mention of the notorious U.S. military prison during the Vietnam War, I assumed it was for captured enemy fighters. But Long Binh Jail, also known as LBJ, on the outskirts of Saigon, was actually for American soldiers. These were men who had broken military law, and there were a lot of them. As the unpopular war dragged on, discipline frayed and soldiers started to rebel. ABC's Craig Spence reports from Saigon. The single toughest problem faced by the military police is the apprehension of deserters and soldiers absent without leave. Most soldiers go AWOL to get away from army routine, some to avoid combat, some even to protest the war. By the summer of 1968, over half the men in Long Bin Jail were locked up on AWOL charges, some for more serious crimes, others for small stuff like refusing to get a haircut. The code of military justice is broad. The stockade had also become extremely overcrowded. Built to house 400 inmates, it was crammed with more than 700 men, and most of them were black. They represented 11% of the troops in Vietnam, but more than 50% of the men incarcerated at the stockade were African-American. It was a situation ready to erupt. And 50 years ago, on August 29th, 1968, it did. Here we go with Armed Forces Radio. My name is Richard Perdomo. I was with the 19th Combat Engineer Unit. I didn't even know there was a jail in Vietnam. I was guilty of refusing a direct order. I refused to fix a flat tire on a dump truck that I did not drive. They gave me six months for that. That's how I ended up at the, the stockade. My name is Scott Riley. I served with the first air cab. I was young, um, thought I was a bit of a badass. Ended up going AWOL. Got busted with a bunch of, uh, a whole lot of marijuana. My name is Jimmy Childress, Jr. I was stealing from the military, M16s, grenade loungers. I even sold a couple of Jeeps. In any war, there was always booty and money to be made, there is always criminal activities. When I first got to the prison, I saw the gates and stuff, and I said to myself, hey, look, I'm going to be safer inside this chain-link fence with guards and guard tires than I would be out there in the field. I thought, man, this is going to be all right. Going to be a good six months, you know, <laughs> but... Uh, Lo and behold, it didn't take me but just a few days to realize that uh, the danger was within that barbed wire fence. Long Bend was the kind of place that from the moment you walked in, you were trying to figure out a way to get out. Here you are sitting in a war zone, in a jail, just at their mercy. The whole prison was not much bigger than one square city block, and it was just full of tents. Uh, each tent would hold maybe 10, 15 people. In the mornings, they would take you out into this big open yard to fill sandbags all day. We were out in 115-degree heat each and every day. Each three-man team had to fill 500 sandbags a day, but you were filling them with hard-packed clay, which had to be dug up with a pick and shovel. The guards and LBJ, they treated you bad, bad, bad. You were being humiliated in that stockade. You were being kicked around. 
I remember one day, something popped me in the back of the head. I was ready to fight. But when I turned around, Major Jackson was standing there. And uh, he was more or less in charge of the prison. He took me to the maximum security area, which we just called the box. Throwed me in that thing and just walked off. I don't know if you know what a Connex box is, but it's a steel box for Army used to keep supplies in. They had them in the stockade for us to lock us up in. That was a way of uh, making you submissive. The temperature inside the box was 100-plus degrees. The light was constantly on 24 hours a day, and you were in there naked. And you're like, this is the U.S. military, and you're treating your own soldiers this way? This is AFBM, serving the American fighting man 24 hours a day from the Delta to the DMZ. I was the deputy commander at the stockade in Long Bend, Vietnam. When I first got there, I could see that was a problem. Guards were reluctant to go to certain areas, especially at night. It wasn't safe. My name is Larry J. Kimbrough. I served as a guard at the stockade. I hated to go in. Having to deal with insubordination, name-calling, profanities. The racial breakdown was there was more blacks than there were whites that were housed in the stockade. So they'd be dissing and dapping. Dissing and dapping was a, a show of solidarity between black prisoners. This would be a clenched fist or a bump. Uh, it's kind of hard to describe when you're white, but uh, it was a soul brother thing. Hey, 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 the Omni Specialist James Brigham, and I'll be your host for two hours of the Power of Soul, Saigon style. Check it out. You're black and you're beautiful, this I know, just being your natural self. Black and white being in Vietnam was no different from black and white being in America. It was no different. You have racial tensions. From the very first day I got to the prison, the blacks all hung together. The whites that were there, we, we kind of all stuck to our one side. We weren't segregated through the military. We were separated by the want to be separated. As an officer, let me give you my perception. There's always tension between the races in a prison. You can control this with adequate staff. When you have control, the tension becomes dormant. Without control, what could you do? We needed more people. None came. NBC interrupts its regular program schedule to bring you the following special report. Martin Luther King Jr. was killed tonight in Memphis, Tennessee, as he stood alone on the balcony. When Martin Luther Hotel, King was killed, that was definitely a turning point. They tried to keep the news from us black soldiers. Police made periodic sweeps up. But we had heard that almost every major city in the United States had rioted. A new burst of anger was afoot in the prison. All black soldiers felt the same. Like, 
why am I even over here? When you can't even go back to America and sit at a lunch counter, you know? You can't go vote. You can't live in a certain community. When you say, who is my real enemy? And we were hot and crazy. We were fed up. So we decided we're going to tear this motherfucker down. Excuse my language. You're listening to AFVN-FM in Saigon. It's 11.05. On August 29th, 1968, at approximately 11.25 p.m., I was standing in my guard shack when I began to hear a loud noise, screaming, yelling, that I knew we had a serious situation. We overpowered the guards and people come from everywhere. I remember getting up out of my tent, and uh, I walked out barefooted. I was looking around, and I saw guys just running, black guys, white guys. Everybody was just going in all directions. I thought, man, I got to get ready. So I put my boots on. I pretty much had on my underwear and my, my combat boots, and that was it. I was locked up in the box. And all of a sudden, kind of like out of nowhere, this black guy opens the door and says, come on out, man. And like somebody had come over from the kitchen with a sheet pan full of um, flat cake, and we're just breaking hunks of this stuff off and, and eating it. The euphoria of being free, that moment, it was a beautiful moment. Knowing all the while that this is not going to end well. Everything just sped up in fast motion. I saw six to eight prisoners running toward me. They threw me to the ground, started kicking, and pummeled me with fists. After that, they moved on to the mess hall that was set on fire. And personally, I don't blame them because the food was definitely lousy. I can remember running past the administration building where they kept all the records of everyone. So I hollered for three or four guys to come go with me, and we kicked the door in. And I said, just start throwing records on the floor and set them afire so they would not know who anyone was. I was the highest-ranking black officer at the stockade. So I just went in and try to get them to calm down. I was surrounded by about a hundred inmates. I think I talked to them for a good 15, 20 minutes. But then I heard two or three of them saying, you ought to kill the Uncle Tom. They stopped listening to what I was saying, so I left. They opened the gate and let me out. That's probably when it really got dangerous. They kept all the shovels and the picks in a little bitty shed. When they got those things out, it just escalated. Boom, boom, boom. Everybody went to fighting everybody. People were just knocking each other in the head, you know, starting fights and swinging shovels and picks and stuff. And it wasn't just blacks on whites. It was just everybody lashing out. That was the only time I was ever scared the whole time I was in Vietnam. When everything started to quiet down, there were like 
six day guards that we had on the ground, and the military was saying release them, but I didn't want to let them go because I hadn't had enough. In fact, I walked past each one of them, bust them in the head with a stick because I was really angry. I'm like, I'm going to make you pay for what you've done to me. And <clears throat> took some of my comrades who had a little more sense than I did to say to me, no, man, let them go. Direct from our newsroom in New York, this is the CBS Evening News with Walter Cronkite. Good evening. There was a riot with racial overtones at the largest U.S. serviceman stockade in Vietnam. And 65 GIs were injured. A white prisoner was killed. He was beaten to death with a shovel. The media was getting so little information as the story unfolded. My name is Peter Arnett. I was a reporter for the Associated Press in Vietnam. The riot had reportedly been put down and things are back to normal. And yet, three weeks later, the military was saying, well, we still have some holdouts. 12 soldiers still controlled a section of the LBJ stockade. Days went by. The military is literally throwing boxes of sea rations over the fence for us to eat. So we kind of knew that they weren't going to kill us. People started pulling out drugs from God only knows where, and we're literally laying in the yard in the hot sun getting high. Turned out to be really an astonishing story. I mean, at any point, the uh, military could have overwhelmed this group of resisting black prisoners. The decisions were made not to do it. The high command realized this story could grow much bigger and with the resistance to the war growing, they just didn't want to start drawing even greater attention to this whole racial issue in Vietnam. So the military played it low key and the riot basically lasted for most of September. At that point, the decision was made to send in a company in a riot control formation to use tear gas. That ended it all. After it was all over, we knew who the ringleaders were, and we took care of them. U.S. military sources in Saigon said today that six Negro soldiers involved in a riot at the Long Bend Stockade will be tried for conspiracy to commit murder. The charges stem from the slaying of the... After the riot, I felt bad about it. I have regrets. And... I felt disappointed because we didn't accomplish anything other than tearing something up, like a child would tear up a toy. We just blew off steam, that's all. And we only made our bed harder than what it was before. Presenting the sounds of 68 on the American Forces Vietnam Network. When I come home, I, I kind of left all of that behind me. It was just one of those hush-hush stories. It's not like describing a battle. There was nothing heroic about it. Families just don't like to think about their sons marching off to war. Instead of marching off to war, he marches off into a stockade. 
today. I am 69 years old, and I'm still angry about the way the military treated its own citizens. I still feel that something had to be done. I guess I was just trying to prove that I'm a human being. I'm over it now, but it took a long time. It took a long time. None of the inmates in our story were ever charged by the military for their participation in the riot. This is the first time they're telling their stories publicly. Richard Perdomo eventually came home and opened a tattoo shop in Tennessee. Scott Riley beat a heroin addiction and now works as a chef at a drug rehab clinic in New York City. Jimmy Childress spent about 30 years of his life in and out of prison. He worked as a welder, among other things, and he's now retired in Kansas City. As American forces pulled out of Vietnam in 1973, the LBJ stockade was transferred to the Vietnamese government, which turned it into a drug rehabilitation center. Today, the area where it stood is now a manufacturing park. To see photographs of the stockade and of characters in our story, go to our website, radiodiaries.org. This story was produced by Sarah Kate Kramer, with me, Joe Richmond, and Nellie Gillis. Our editors are Deborah George and Ben Shapiro. Thanks to Professor Gerald Goodwin, whose op-ed in the New York Times led us to the story. And thanks to historian Kimberly Phillips, who wrote a book about black resistance in the military. Radio Diaries is part of PRX's Radiotopia. We have support from the National Endowment for the Humanities, National Endowment for the Arts, and our listeners like you. I'm Joe Richmond of Radio Diaries. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed that episode from Radio Diaries. One of the best parts of being in the world of podcasting is sharing the shows that I love to listen to. So do the same. Share Vet Story with the folks you think would love this podcast as much as you do. While I'm on the topic of sharing, have you visited ConnectingVets.com today? If you haven't, you really should. Connecting Vets is all about bringing you the latest news in the world of veteran issues from Capitol Hill to the community right outside your door. ConnectingVets.com is dedicated to inspiring veterans and preparing them for their next mission, one story at a time. Go to ConnectingVets.com today. VetStory is also on Twitter. We're VetStoryPodcast, so follow us and let me know what you think. Maybe you have a vet story you want to share. That's VetStoryPodcast on Twitter. Thanks for being part of our preseason launch, and I'll see you at the next episode of Vet Story. Story.